Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. This marks the 400th episode of The Axe Files, and the 400th episode demands a special guest. And I have a very special guest today in Speaker Nancy Pelosi, not only a historic leader of Congress as the first woman to serve as speaker, but one of the most durable uh, leaders in congressional history and certainly a major player in the history of this epic that we're living right now. I sat down with Speaker Pelosi earlier this week in the midst of the standoff over mail-in ballots and the U.S. Postal Service, but we talked about much more than that. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And let me just say, for those of you who have listened to these conversations from the beginning, nearly five years of conversations, I thank you so much. And those of you who have joined us along the way, I thank you as well. Madam Speaker, it is good to see you again. This is our 400th podcast. You're the first person who's been on this podcast three different (laughs) times, and they've been at three different periods in our history, Uh, this being perhaps the most uh, volcanic uh, of them all. You're like the center. uh, You're the center of calm in the middle of the storm here, but welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure and an honor to be on, for the third time, your 400th podcast. (laughs) Well, I I can't think of anyone I'd rather have. (laughs) Today, as we record this, you just came from meeting with your members to talk about this situation with the U.S. Postal Service, uh, something that I think few would have imagined uh, in the past becoming an issue on the doorstep of an election. But uh, tell me what you've decided to do. Well, again, thank you. Let's just uh, uh, salute the Postal Service. This uh, Postal Service is in the Constitution, and Congress's rec- uh, relationship with it is in the Constitution. This is what you would have said some years ago, all American is apple pie, motherhood, baseball, the Postal Service. Postal Service is the most popular agency of government, over 90% favorable uh, of it. Uh, the uh, president is, uh, has shredded the Constitution, and now he wants to cut the sinews that have held our country together. When we were colonies, we didn't have a Postal Service. When we did, we became a united country. And so they're going right after that. It is interesting to see the response that members and the Democrats and Republicans, House and Senate, all over the country are receiving because the Postal Service means something to the American people. So what I have called is the members, uh, yesterday put out the letter for members to come back uh, this week. We will be, Steny announced on our conference call, we will be voting 
on Saturday. Uh, the legislation will be complete tomorrow night and it's congressional, but that is, you know, Ledge Council, CBO, all that. But the mm -hmm. terms of it address the concerns that we have and include $25 billion for the Postal Service. Now, it's interesting to note, I think, uh, that that $25 billion is a figure uh, that was requested by the Board of Governors of the Postal Service. Democrats and Republicans, 100% appointed by Donald Trump. They asked for the $25 billion, actually even more. We're having mm -hmm. some in another bill, in our infrastructure bill but the 25 that we need to have now. So this is, that's the provenance of that number. And again, it has a direct relationship to the elections. Uh, people say, and I agree, the Postal Service is election central at this time. You know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the election has uh, created a sense of urgency about this, um, but the people rely on the Postal Service. I, I commented on this the other day and uh, a a gentleman uh, tweeted at me about his uh, his son who has uh, epilepsy like my daughter does and that his his he said his epilepsy medication was a, a week late uh, because of the slowing of the mail. You must be hearing a lot of that uh, from your members and that must impact on Republican uh, members as well. A lot of them from rural districts where mail delivery uh, is more difficult. It almost brings, uh, well, one of my members said uh, that people are coming up to him crying, and that's not unusual about this. 1.2 billion prescriptions were sent through the mail in 2019. That's before the coronavirus, keeping people home and needing more prescriptions. 1.2 billion, almost 100% of the prescriptions that go from the VA to our veterans go through the Postal Service. So this is a health issue. Uh, and again, at the time of coronavirus, even more so because so many people are staying home. And uh, that is an urgency. It's a health issue. It's also an issue of, again, connecting the American people. It, it's, it's so wrong for them to do this. People depend, especially in rural areas, when they imagine that visual of them bringing in trucks and picking up uh, the mailboxes and carting them away and the idea that they would stop the uh, processing machinery in the, in the, post, in the post offices uh, to slow, that slows down the mail. So in our bill, we, again, focusing is that first class, that, that any mail that relates to the election has to be first class mail. So they can't say, we're, as they did to 46 states, we can't, yeah. we can't uh, guarantee that your vote will be in, your ballot will be in on time. But if you had mm -hmm. one reason to stop what they're doing, it's the health and well-being of the American people. So one person who seems less concerned about the pace of the mail right now is Mitch McConnell, who yeah. said this morning that he saw no, no urgency and did not anticipate bringing the Senate back. Uh, to deal with your bill. So, uh, you know, I guess to a, a, a cynical public, the question would be, what is, what, what, what is the purpose if you can't get the cooperation uh, of, the, of the Senate? You've sent hundreds of bills, some really mm. substantive and meaningful. Over 300 bipartisan bills. Yes. All, I mean, 
Senator McConnell's desk must be very, very large because he's got a lot of bills sitting on it. Um, But what about this? You're a master strategist. What's your strategy here? Okay, well, you know, you talked earlier about all the enthusiasm for one thing and another. Uh, I always say to the members, uh, we have to be passionate about what we're concerned about, but we have to be very dispassionate about how we deal with it. And there are people who want this bill to be heaped with this, that, and the other thing. Uh, And I said, if you do that, the Republicans won't vote for it. And we want them to vote for it. We We take this patriotic responsibility very seriously. So let's make it as easy as possible for the Republicans to vote for it by not adding things that relate to one thing and another, but just to have it focused on the Postal Service. And if Mitch McConnell thinks that it's a good idea to ignore uh, supporting the Postal Service, I feel very sorry for him and the people of our country. But I, I, I have, you have no idea, or maybe you do, the explosive, you used the word volcanic earlier, the volcanic nature of this. This is like nothing anybody has ever seen because it hits home very directly, personally, health-wise, and of course, voting-wise, but putting that aside. I said, I'm not putting that in the bill. I'm just going for what we need to do to protect the Postal Service. I think it will get strong bipartisan support, and then they'll have to answer for whether they are, are going to help the Postal Service or not. We want them to do so. We want this to go to the president. We want it signed. If they don't, I think they do take that course of action to their peril. Political peril. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Louis DeJoy is the postmaster general. He was sent there in May mm-hmm. uh, by the president. He is a former uh, uh, co-finance chair of the RNC, million-dollar donor uh, to the president. Uh Do you think he was sent over to the Postal Service for this purpose? I mean, the Postal Service does have problems. He's a logistics guy. Um, They do need they they do need to be uh, they do need to be upgraded and and so on. But the timing of all of this does raise that question. I don't think he was sent over for that purpose. I know that he was. Uh, this is a, a political hack. This is a mega donor uh, to Trump. And let's just put one thing straight. It's called the Postal Service. So then when they say, well, it doesn't make this kind of money or that, it's not a business. It's a service. So if we have to ride it out in certain cycles where it's making, there's more mail or less mail, and, and uh, uh, what's the bottom line of it? It's a service that meets the needs of the American people. He was sent over there to diminish uh, the capability of this to be a service to the American people by, by slowing down the mail. And how many ways does he do that? By stopping overtime so that people don't stay, by not replacing the people. Many people have coronavirus who work at the Postal Service, so they need temporarily to be replaced. But look at our bill. Uh, we. It's, Look at our bill to see how we address these concerns. But yes, he was there to undermine the ability of the Postal Service to uh, play the role that it does in elections. Not just the ballot, but the persuasive mail of persuasion and the rest of that. He, uh, he met with the president apparently in the last couple of weeks, certainly within the president's right to meet with the postmaster general. But do you think the president's calling the shots on this? 
Of course. But what's funny about it is when you suggest that the uh, the president's representative said, this is an independent agency. Oh, really? Tell that to the president and tell that to the unions and the workers who are paying the price uh, for these arbitrary decisions that are very political. But they use the excuse of, well, they lost some money, this or that. Okay, let's subject that to whatever scrutiny it needs to be. But not let let us not measure this as a... Now, this man knows the post service because he has tried to uh, have uh, businesses that take business away from the Postal Service. This is not a friend yeah. to the Postal Service. And, and the Postal Service, is, the Postmaster General, is hired by the Board of Governors. And the Board of Governors are the ones who gave, said, we need $25 billion dollars. Uh, for this. So, and they are all appointed by Trump, as I, I mentioned earlier. No, this, this is by design, and it's blatant, and it's, ter- un- it's un-American, really. It's unpatriotic to do this. Now, I know that uh, uh, Representative Maloney, who's the chairman of your yes. oversight committee, has called for hearings. He's been asked to appear on uh, on August 24th. Uh, do you expect him to yes, appear? He- and if they just, I just heard before now that he has said he will come. He was coming in like middle of September 17th or something like that because he said he just really didn't know the territory. He had to get the lay of the land before he could come in. Uh, and But that's too far away. Now he didn't, he knew the lay of the land well enough <laughs> to be taking po- mailboxes out of neighborhoods, uh, processing machines out of post offices, but he couldn't come to Congress. He accepted the invitation. We'll see if he comes. Maybe he meant the delay of the land, not the lay of the <laughs> land. You never know. Well, you know, it's just another example of the disrespect uh, that the uh, Trump administration has for the American people. Our veterans, 97,000 veterans work in the Postal Service, almost 100,000. As I say, almost 100% of their medicines from the VA come through the Postal Service. So just thinking of them. People in rural areas very heavily depend on the connection to the rest of the country in the Postal Service. So when they say something like, well, they're, not, they're losing money, it's an insult to the intelligence of the American people. But they do that on a regular basis. A couple of your uh, members have uh, uh, suggested criminal referral uh, about the postmaster general around Mm -hmm. this issue. Do you anticipate that? Are you going, I mean, I don't expect that the uh, the DOJ would act on that, but do you, do you think that there's reason to, to pursue that? Well, uh, let's just talk about litigation in general, uh, because on all of these issues, we fight in the Congress, we fight in the court of public opinion, and we fight in the courts. And many, uh, 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 attorneys general across the country are looking to see what would be the proper action to stop the actions that they are doing. And many groups, and I'm not at liberty to name because, again, they are making their own decisions about the standing they have uh, to go to court over what they're doing. We uh, would be rather be um, friends of the court, uh, amicus brief, briefs rather than uh, spending our time on that litigation because there's a question as to whether what our standing would be. So uh, again, 
what we want to do is get the job done no, for the I, American I people. And we're, uh, you know, all these issues as to whether we have standing or not are academic discussions that we can carry on. But in the meantime, our first order of business is to get the money, uh, reverse their decisions, and have the Postal Service be a service to the American people. I, I've had the chance to watch you uh, operate as speaker from the other side, uh, and uh, I, I always admired the way you worked with your members to get to that point. You, you talk about being passionate, but also being, uh, uh, what was the word you used? Dispassionate. And, and, but dispa and dispassionate. <laughs> uh, on this one, you know, there's a tr tremendous amount of desperation about mm. uh, the, the gap here in the extension of unemployment benefits and the enhanced unemployment benefits. You're in kind of a stare down with the White House uh, mm. over this. Um, do you see any movement at all? Well, let's just say uh, anyone with children or grandchildren, in my case, who are in, in school understands the angst that families have across the country. And one of the biggest obstacles to agreement for us is funding for education. Uh, we have a difference as to the amount, but also how the money is spent. In addition to that, unless you support state and local government, which is the other big obstacle to agreement, that's where an, over 90% of state of uh, education fund, public education funding comes from, state and local government. So there are two areas of big ideological disagreement. They say, why should one state help pay for the needs of another state? Well, welcome to the United States of America. Did you ever hear of Katrina or Ike or Joplin, Missouri or North Carolina storms or anything like that? Yes, that's what we do, A. And B, uh, the... Um, the fact is that they, they're saying uh, the president wants all the schools to open up actually. So the bulk of the money that they want to spend is for actual opening up children there in person. And uh, um, say about 75% at least of the largest school districts in the country are going to be virtual or hybrid. So it, it, again, it's an ideological thing. So we're saying that you may not know this, to them, uh, but it takes almost the same amount of money to actu open actually, virtually, or in a hybrid way. And so we need more money, but don't take our word for it. This is the request of the American Association of, of School Superintendents. Any of those organizations are saying we need more money than they want to put up, A, and we need it spent in a way that recognizes so much of it will be virtual. And at the same time, we need the state and local money, which is the largest, over 90%, as I say, uh, support for schools. Right yeah. now, they're firing teachers and the rest across the country. Senator McConnell and the president have both referred to the, this as a blue state bailout. It, it's, it's true that if you, um, if you actually looked at how federal revenues are distributed, it would be the blue states who are... Um, Sending disproportionate amounts of money yeah. to small, well, we don't want to get states, into that. You know, no, I understand that. No, I know you don't. Yeah. I, I, know I mean, you it, don't. It, it works in our favor. New York, California—we're the big contributors to the uh, to the treasury, and yes. and and other states uh, get more back than they put in, and yet they're saying we don't want to. It, it's a it's an idea. It's it's a it's a difference of opinion, and that's what elections are about—to address. 
the differences of opinion. Although people can hardly wait for the election to get some of these issues resolved. Mm. The election still 80 some odd or 70 some odd days away. Yeah. 78. That 78. Be. Yes. <laughs> so uh, again, where are we? I saw first, first of all, I saw Mark Meadows on, on how, how, by the way, are you getting along with Meadows? He was a leader in the Freedom Caucus when uh, on the Republican side, most outspoken part of the Republican caucus uh, before he left to become chief of staff. What has his role been in these negotiations? Uh, to be Dr. No. Uh, but let's not spend any time on him. It's just not worth it. it, it, <laughs> it, it it's, it's what the president wants. And that's, if, do they have the confidence of the president? It's what he wants. Now, it's 94 days since we passed the HEROES Act. At that time, McConnell pushed the pause button and said, we need to pause. The virus didn't pause. Rent check uh, bills didn't pause. Food on the table didn't pause. All of these, they didn't pause and they only spiraled upward. So now we need even more money than we have in the HEROES Act, but we're willing to, so we said, we'll come down a billion, trillion, you go up a trillion, but they're saying we can't go up a trillion until we, we can't do that. And besides, we, we don't want you spending that money on state and local government. So um, uh, I don't... Uh, uh, I mean, is there any progress at all? Have you had any? Uh, have you had? You know, I heard uh, Meadows yesterday on television saying they would pass a standalone bill on the postal service. Yeah, that's have right. you, yeah. If they express that, that to you, look, look, we're going to send them, and we'll see. You just spent time saying that Mitch McConnell isn't going to even pass it. Let's see what they do when the American people, our bosses, the American people weigh in on all of this. Uh, but I don't predicate any action on the basis that anything that comes out of the White House at any given time. But by the way, we want to make an agreement. We have said that Chuck Schumer, the Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the House, we all want to make an agreement. We want to, again, honor our heroes by uh, supporting state and local government, healthcare workers, first responders, transportation, sanitation, our teachers, our teachers, our teachers, food suppliers. We want to do that right now. They're on the verge of being fired and they'll go on unemployment insurance. So what's the savings there except undoing the economy of these localities? And the economists tell us the fiscal soundness of state and local government is essential to a sound economy. Secondly, we want to quash the, the virus and they're resistant to the funds that are needed to do that. And that's the only way you're going to open schools safely or the economy safely. And third, to put money in the pockets of the American people. And we have vast differences, whether it comes to food, food, whether it comes to rent, what, whatever um, uh, initiatives that are there. And of course, then we have census and we have uh, OSHA uh, protections for our workers and we have the Postal Service and we have the funding for the uh, elections. We can find our common ground, but we can't find it if they say we're not going down the path of state and local government. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. 
What is your relationship with McConnell? He doesn't seem to be particularly relevant to these negotiations. In fact, you haven't talked to the president in 10 months, and it doesn't look like you're talking to McConnell. It looks like you have these intermediaries, Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and Meadows. It's a peculiar kind of arrangement. Well, first of all, you're dismissing my uh, encounter with the president at the State of the Union address, so it isn't 10 months ago. Don't forget that. Well, <laughs> yes, I don't know how to characterize well, that encounter. It, it, it that was it seemed like a curt encounter. Well, it was. It was. It wasn't as curt as my saying at the previous encounter. All ro- with you, Mr. President. All roads lead to Putin. Uh, that might be considered even more abrupt and curt. That was. It was. It was. That was the meeting that. Was, that was. Uh, that was what I was saying when I was standing up. The there. iconic photo of it's you a, standing up. With you, Mr. President, all roads lead <laughs> to Putin. And in terms of McConnell, we actually have a kind of a civil relationship. We have to deal with some housekeeping in the Capitol and other issues and the rest. And we, again, on occasions like our John Lewis's service, we had to work together to have the rotunda and the um, uh, the Lincoln catafalque used for John mm-hmm. and stuff. So we, we, we actually uh, have a, more of a conversational relationship than... It feels like, to me, I mean, you guys are both very experienced legislators. It feels to me like he's sort of given his proxy to the White House because he doesn't want to be undercut by agreeing to things that they then don't agree to. But you hit the nail right on the head. You hit the nail right on the head. He's come to my office and said to me, I'm not agreeing anything that the president doesn't support. So uh, to me, that's an abdication of the, the first branch of government, the legislative branch, and the role of the Senate. If he's just abdicating and not weighing in on it, then it's no use even talking to him. We might as well just be talking uh, to the White House if, it, if you're not uh, willing to, to represent the, the people of the states that you represent. So in any event, you know what, let's just have a good election uh, where we have a, a, a clear victory uh, for Ballots the Democrats, yes. for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and aren't we proud of all of that, and not fall into the trap of just, what about they said this, what about they said that, because that's their victory. They're masters of uh, diversion. Uh, we have said very clearly that we're ready uh, to take our numbers down, not that we're going to change any of our priorities. I mean, we're not going to say Sophie's choice. We're going to feed some children, but not others, because the Republicans won't let us do this much. But we can change the amount of time it takes. Same thing for, with other issues that relate to rent and relate to um, uh, meeting the needs of state and local. And the education piece, though, is essential. It's essential that people have an understanding of how they can open schools yeah. virtually, actually, in a hybrid way. Uh, but but uh, they'll come to the table. I can't let it just fly by. When you re- you raise this all roads lead to Putin question, and it yeah. does raise the question of mm-hmm. uh, the role that Russia is playing in this election, not just the last election, right. but mm-hmm. this election. I know you. there are certain things you can't say because they're classified, but um, how high is your level of concern about Russia, and why do you think all roads lead to Putin with this president? Well, because well, what would what would you say? He tried to undermine uh, NATO. He gave a, he did what he did in Ukraine, uh, ignoring the invasion of Ukraine, the uh, uh, taking of of, um, of well the, for so many different reasons that are well known to you in terms of uh, uh, the support for NATO 
and all that that applies across the board. Why, though? Why? That, That's the th- question. Here's the thing, and this is what I say to my colleagues. You are protecting him. You are protecting him. You have no idea why he caters to Putin so much. Sometimes I think it's just because Putin is shorter than he is, and he likes people <laughs> who are shorter than he is. But putting that aside, when we win, and when we must, in January, we will have a new president of the United States, Joe Biden. We will have a new secretary of the Treasury. And when the chairman, Richie Neal, requests the president's tax returns, we will then see what the president has been hiding all along. And I do believe that all roads will continue to lead to Putin. So you think uh, he's compromised, personally compromised? Well, we don't know. Pers- what would you say? What does Russia have on the president personally, politically, financially, in any way uh, that he would cater to him in this way? And to ignore the fact that there are reports of bounty on our on um, uh, killing our soldiers. Is it so or not? Let's look into it, but not to say it's a hoax. Uh, the, the list is a long one, uh, but the fact is it is one big mistake for our country. And it is a shame that the Republicans have abandoned their suspicion of Russia just to have a cover-up uh, uh, for, for Donald Trump. Uh, our, our, dear, our dear Elijah Cummings, he said, when you're dancing with the angels, what will you say about what you did at this time? And I'm saying to these members, you're protecting him and you're going to have to answer for all of it. A. And B, what will you say to your daughters or your children just in general when they ask you, what did you do when he said what he said about women and people and and, uh, our system and the rest? You're going to have to answer for this one of these days, and it may be sooner than later. I know you're ever the optimist, realist, but optimist. And uh, from your, you know, the the notion that uh, there'll be a great victory in November or whenever the the totals are, are are counted. What if it doesn't work out that way? What if Donald Trump were to be reelected? What would the next four years be like for the country and for you? Well, don't worry about me, but worry about the country. Uh, this country is great. Uh, we all believe in America that it could stand anything. One term, even of. Donald Trump. Two terms, I think, does very serious damage to the institutions of our, our democracy. Very serious. So, as I say, we don't agonize, we organize. We're going to make sure we have to win this election. Last time, maybe over confidence, whatever it was, uh, Russian intervention, whatever it was, uh, changed the outcome. But in this election, we must win. Nothing less is at stake than our democracy, our constitution, the, well, the, look, who are we? United States of America, this beautiful country, our constitution, he's shredding. He, dishon- he, dishon- he de- um, uh, dishonors the constitution. Who are we? A nation of immigrants by and large, and aren't we proud of our presidential ticket? A nation of immigrants. And he denigrates who we are as a people. What are we? A beautiful land from sea to shining sea and beyond that God gave us. And he degrades it every single day. Well, let's say maybe five times a week. (laughs) And then, well, who are we? We are a nation of values, of community, of 
vision of our founders about e pluribus unum, of bringing people together, and he undermines that. So, every, and that will, matters will only get worse if he's allowed uh, to be left to his own devices on this. And what's the saddest part of it all are the Republicans in Congress just catering, and then people say, oh, and in the cloakroom they may say something else. No, they don't, because they share his views politically. They, they don't care about the environment. They're in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry. They don't care about safety for our children. They're in the pocket of the uh, gun industry. They don't care about fairness in our economy. It, what, what are we talking about? He's their guy. He's their guy. He's doing exactly what they want. Now, they're not disgusting personally as he is. I mean, I don't know how they are because I don't, I don't know. But I assume they're not. But they're not publicly as disgusting as he is personally. But they're willing to accept that because that's where they are politically. Look, 80-some percent of the Republicans support what Trump is doing, 80-some percent, on a day that it's not 90 percent. So this elect elections have ramifications. Me, I say to my Republican friends, and I do have some, take back your party. America needs a strong Republican party. This is the grand old party. This, you've done great things for our country. This isn't who you are. You've been hijacked. You've been hijacked by people who don't even want to, uh, you mentioned Meadows, he didn't even vote for Sandy Aid, no, just to show you where those people are. So, so um, uh, take it back because we don't, we, we want to be the preeminent part. We intend to have a big victory. I know they'll try to steal it. They'll try to lie, cheat, and steal to steal it. But we have to inoculate against that. And we cannot allow them to scare people from voting because uh, they're, 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 it's only going to be a mess. That's a technique, a tactic that they have, and we cannot let them get away with it. But it is, um, uh, it is sad to see how the Republicans have been so delinquent, derelict in their duty to protect the Constitution and our country and honor the uh, legacy of the Republican Party. You, you're a born and raised organizer. You mm -hmm. grew up in a political family. Yeah. You learned at an early age how to, how to get out the vote. Mm, um, what's your advice to Democrats now? Because uh, we really don't know at this juncture what the Postal Service will be doing uh, come October. I mean, what are you telling your colleagues? What are you telling your uh, colleagues in California uh, about uh, about how to deal with this very unusual situation. Well, last night we had our opening uh, California event, and today, this morning, early this morning, uh, California time, well, 10 o'clock in Maryland, I had the privilege of speaking to the Maryland uh, Democratic Party, a place that is uh, like home to me in many ways. And um, what I basically am just saying is honor our VIPs our volunteers in politics. We can have all the persuasion we want and the rest, but unless we are mobilizing, we cannot guarantee a success. We have the three Ms, messaging, mobilization, and money to make it all happen. But nothing works as much as the candidate. That's the, the three-legged stool our candidates stand on. And one thing, despite all of our differences or maybe gloriously because of them, we have, we have one thing that is in common with us, and that is 
helping America's working families. Right. So that is, that is what draws the volunteers. And what we're saying, this is a time when they may have fear of coronavirus, they may have concern about the economy, but they're still volunteering. So my message is honor our volunteers and Un- we have a plan we- for how they will work. Yeah, well, that's the question is like, what do you do to overcome this obstacle? A lot of people, maybe more than half of the voters will want to vote by mail or or in some way avoid going to polling Mm -hmm. places because of COVID. Uh, There is a concern about the slowing down of the mails. What are you as an organizer telling people to do to try and overcome that? Vote early. You have to vote early. I mean, again, what is our result that we want Now let's engineer back from that. And timing is very important uh, because the Postal Service in its present form is trying to slow down the mail. They've even told 46 states, as we mentioned, that their their ballots may not be in on time. So in our organization of it and the money that we're asking for in Congress is not just for absentee balloting, it's also about making sure that people who want to vote in person will have a, a healthy way to do so. Mm-hmm. So that means distancing, which means you probably need more polling places, more hours, more days for that to happen. Some places don't have early voting as much as we would like them to. So they there have to be enough places for people to go. The shame of Ohio saying, we're not going to have these boxes. We'll have one per county for people to bring their, uh, their ballot is an obstacle to participation that they should be held accountable for. But we, we must have more ways for people to bring their ballot to officialdom, where it will be counted, rather than count on the post office unless they're going to be voting very early. Now, what I said to the postmaster general is some people don't know how they're going to vote. They're watching the campaign. You're talking about Biden, Trump, but there's some people are watching the campaign and they may want to vote later. And what you're doing is uh, negating the impact that their vote would have. So you, you can't slow it down. But we have to assume that they will and we have to vote early. And again, don't agonize, organize. And we are having just uh, so many people coming forward to want to be poll watchers who never thought they'd ever do that in their lives because but they, they don't want anybody to say, we can't have as many polling places because we don't have many people. We have that. Uh, and um, I feel very confident about it. I, um, I don't want to give our whole game plan here, but, <laughs> but I feel you, very confident about and, it. And are you confident that you're going to gain seats in the House? Yes, definitely. If it were election work today. Now, everything yeah. is about today. The, the election, election today, how many seats do you think you'd gain? A lot. And I know you know the answer. <laughs> Well, I know the most pessimistic view, and it's very good. Uh See, I always go by the most pessimistic view. And what is the most pessimistic view today? Double digit. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. I won't go further than that. All right. That's that's pretty optimistic pessimism. Yeah. Well, you know what? My responsibility is to protect the incumbents to protect the majority that we have. They've been courageous, they've taken votes, they have to answer for in places where it may not be as obvious as to why, and my role is to protect them. So we will have a democratic majority. But it's nothing to be taken for granted. Let me just tell you this, since we're talking politics. uh, We won 40 seats last time. 31 of them 
were in districts that Trump had won. Now, he wasn't on the ballot, so people came out, not, not all of his people came out because he wasn't on the ballot. He's on the ballot this time, so a number of his people will come out. We won by little margins in those mm -hmm. districts, so I don't assume anything. We're mobilizing. You have lost some incumbents uh, in primaries, uh, including Elliot Engel yeah. in, in New York, uh, Lacey Clay in Missouri, yeah. two progressive uh, candidates. And it's interesting to me, I mean, because you are the one who then has to, uh, to, to, to bring cohesion to right. a diverse uh, caucus. First of all, was it painful to lose those incumbents? And secondly, what, how do you interpret the results? Well, it was uh, personally, yes, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, anybody could win my district and it doesn't matter because it won't be a Republican. What we're mm -hmm. concerned about, what I'm concerned about talking politics here, don't tell yeah. anybody I told you this. Yes. That the, <laughs> the, the thing is, is when the, uh, these exuberances uh, reveal, uh, prevent us from uh, nominating the person who can win in the general. It can win in the general because the, the numbers are important in Congress, but it's not only the quantity, it's the quality of leadership. And members have a title, it's called representative, and that's their job description and their title. So when there's a, a um, shall we say, an exuberance uh, that uh, keeps us from nominating the person who can win in the general, that's what we're concerned about. Somebody taking the place in a district like mine, a district like Joe Crowley, a district like Elliot Engel, a district like, we personally would be sad about that, but politically it, it doesn't reflect how that, those same candidates would win in the districts that we had. We won in 40 tough districts. We had a bold, progressive agenda for the people to lower the cost of health care by lowering the cost of prescription drugs, bigger paychecks by building the infrastructure mm -hmm. a green way for our country, cleaner government with HR1 to uh, John Lewis's uh, and John Sarbanes, the two of them, with legislation to stop the voting su voter suppression and elevate the role of small donors. So that was our plan, and it worked in those districts. What a message in my district you could get to 90% maybe if you had a more progressive, but that may not have worked someplace else. So as bold and progressive as we are, but also non-menacing in terms of what it is. Does it present uh, challenges to you as, uh, as the leader uh, no. to uh, onboard no. these, the, no. these more progressive We would never, look, that's who I was, and that's who I am. I'm the I'm left-wing San Francisco liberal, don't forget the Republicans no, no, spent I keep, I keep 137,000 in ads. <laughs> ads in the election of 2018. And uh, um, San Francisco liberal, proudly, proudly. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I mean, I, I don't deter anybody's exuberances. They, what they believe is what they believe, and that's what they want to act upon, and they convince other people to go that route. God bless them, and we need that vitality all the vitalities in our party. Uh, but um, the fact is, if we're going to have the majority, it doesn't, there aren't 218 San Franciscos in the country, and I keep reminding right. my constituents of that. But more important than that at this time is that we must win the Electoral College. We must win the Electoral College. I'm not sure San Francisco message does that, but I do think that our consensus message in our party does. And mm -hmm. the, um, 
it's essential. Everything is at stake. Civilization as we know it today, the Constitution of the United States, our democracy, it's all at stake. The air our children breathe, the water they drink, everything yeah. is at stake in this election. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You're a senator. Kamala Harris is now uh, a a historic figure as the first uh, woman of of color. uh, black Indian American uh, on the ticket. Um, the president, you know, had the uh, had a reaction. I guess you could anticipate um, called her um, nasty. Forget I think him. Forget him. You, don't it's hard, don't he, dwell on I him. I think it's forget hard to him. forget him. He, he's the president uh, yeah, but of the he's, United uh, States. But, he's but, but how how would how did seventy eight more? How days. did you react when you heard his words, <laughs> or do you just brush them off and say? That's to be expected. Well, you know what? He just shows how pathetically small he is to go to that place. But I don't want to talk about him. I respect the people who voted for him. They exercise their right to vote. They don't want to prove, think they did something that wasn't right. So they continue to support him, that, that, that path down there. Uh, but but uh, to give more uh, currency uh, to his really hateful remarks is just not something I'm going to engage in. But I am proud of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And she is the first woman of color. uh, And that's historic. Uh, But she's also the first woman who's going to be vice president of the United States. And that is not only history, that's progress. Yeah. I I, I want to just ask, I I want to try your patience by asking you just one more question about the president, which is, (laughs) we do remember, you mentioned it earlier, that that scene in the Capitol where he refused to shake your hand. You ripped up his speech. Right. But but, um, (laughs) is there some theory under which you could say to yourself, well, we tried to impeach him. We were in the middle of that process. I could see why he was unhappy with me. Uh, Is there anything that would justify what he, you know, his snubbing of you in the in the chamber, or how did you interpret that? I, I didn't even notice it, frankly. But any, less contact any of us have with him is okay with me. But in addition to that, um, I didn't. I was listening to his speech, and in the course of it, I thought, I've got to tear up that page, and then another page, and then another page, and then I thought. This speech is a pack of lies. He is degrading the chamber of the House of Representatives with some of the actions and the words that he is using here. So I'm going to tear this up. I thought my staff is really going to, I wonder what they're going to think when this, because we hadn't, I mean, that was not any intention to do that. But let me just say that that uh, uh, I believe uh, that I respect the office of president, of the president, much more than he respects it. I know that because I don't think he respects it at all. Why would he do the things he does and say the things he does? But um, it won't be long. It won't be long. He doesn't tell the truth. So when people say, why don't you talk to him? It's like, well, why? We, we went, we were going to do a Dreamers. Yes, yes, yes. And then no, no, no. 
Then you saw on TV, he was going to do comprehensive immigration reform in a bipartisan way. Dick Durbin, what's his name from South Carolina? Graham, Mr. Graham. Uh, And then they didn't do it. So it's it's almost a a waste of time. But again, it is... um, it is. Who do you trust over there? Do you trust Secretary Mnuchin as a negotiator? Why would we go into that right here? Uh, uh, the president I, trusts I him. If the president trusts him, then that's who we would be talking to. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, we have we've done many things together. We have four bipartisan coronavirus bills, four of them bipartisan. Before that, we time and again, we kept government. We opened up government by having a bipartisan opening of government, overcoming some of the president's obstacles of taking pride. He said, I take, I'm going to own, you know, the shutting down of government, really? And then we did the U.S. Canada, U.S. Mexico, Canada uh, trade agreement. People said to me, why would you give him that victory? I said, it wasn't a victory for him. Uh, the bill he sent us, we wouldn't even vote on. But what we ended up with was something uh, that we could agree to and that uh, was good for the American, American worker, for our environment, etc. And uh, I would not not do it because it was a, a, a collateral benefit to him if it was a good thing for America's workers. So he doesn't dominate, you know, we're not Trump-centric in terms of if it's good for him, we're not going to do it. If it's good for the American people, we will do it. Hardly anything he puts forth is good for the American people. They have disdain for America's working families. They have disrespect uh, for our values. So it's hard to negotiate with them because it's hard to find common ground when they say, oh, the people are getting this enhanced benefit. They're just sitting home. They don't want to go to work. No, they're sitting home because their children can't go to school and they can't afford childcare. So let's address that. Oh, these people who are not paying the rent, they could pay the rent. They just don't feel like it. When I questioned them, they said, well, we didn't say everybody. We just said some of them. Well, no, this is a real problem. So don't disrespect their motivation. They're the American people. We have a responsibility to help them. So when you say, do you trust them? Uh, We don't share values, uh, but uh, we will come to an agreement uh, on this. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean we fold to their lack of values that they have in theirs and disregard the needs of America. Our view, frankly, in all of these things is what the economists tell us. Help the neediest. Help the neediest. That's not their view. Speaker, you, for for years, you resisted the uh, pressure to commence on, with impeachment. And you did it for good reason, because you felt like you knew what the outcome would, would be. Uh, and and y- y- then your hand was forced. That's not true. That's not, certainly not true. My hand was not forced. The, when it was clear to the American people what the case was, our caucus came to a decision. It was not a forced thing. And in fact, many of the actions that we take, I want the caucus to be ahead of me on them. Yeah. No, I understand. No, I'm not suggesting your hand. I, that was a bad choice of words. But mm-hmm. when he took the action he took in Ukraine, he changed the circumstances, That's right. and it exactly. was very hard not to act yeah. in the face of that. That's right. I agree with that. He escaped that. It turned out the way you suspected it would, and he was politically, before this virus, he looked like he was resurgent because he escaped uh, mm-hmm. that. 
Is that a place where Congress could ever go back again if he were if he were reelected? Yes, of course. If he acts in a way that is uh, uh, in, in defiance of the Constitution, uh, and that's what he did. But let me just say this so you have a clearer picture of this. We're operating in a system where the Justice Department has gone totally rogue. That should not come as any surprise to you that I would say that. When you see what this Attorney General, supposed to be the Attorney General of the United States of America, is the attorney lapdog of the President of the United States, misrepresented what the Mueller report would be in advance and this or that. So when the... um, the case was building, and when the case was so clear in terms of Ukraine, it would have been a a violation of our oath of office not to go forward. Mm -hmm. I think it's a violation of their oath of office, the way they voted, but no surprise. But that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean we wouldn't impeach him. Why would we not? Because of politics? No, it would be political not to impeach him. And you know what? He's going to be impeached defeated, and then we'll see what else. You've known Joe Biden for a very long time. You've probably known him way back to the beginnings of his political career because you were were active in politics in in California at that time. What should the American people know about him that they don't know? Maybe they do. Hopefully they do know that this is a person who has a beautiful view of America. It's just the view of, of fairness of of respecting the dignity and worth of every person and to have public policies that match that. So his vision is the vision of our founders, the pluribus unum from many one, uh, that we would always care about each other as a country. And then uh, he has knowledge. I mean, he's been there for so long as a senator and now and then vice president. So he knows he knows the possibilities and therefore he thinks he has good judgment and he thinks in a strategic way about how to get things done. The most important, but that's all cerebral, you know, my vision, my knowledge, my judgment, my strategic thinking. The thing that people will get to know better is his authenticity and his integrity. He will show people what is in his heart. And I say that to candidates all the time. Show people what's in their heart. That's, the, that's what's real. That's what your connection is. A person of great faith, and our faith, and that which I share with him, our Catholicism tells us that every person is God, God's child and must be treated with respect and dignity. And that's how he is. So what would I know that, he, that others don't know? Um, well, I, maybe I just have a fuller appreciation of what his faith means to him. And really, what uh, his faith has been a source of his great strength and the love that Jill and his family have for him uh, is a source of, of his perseverance in all of this. We're very blessed to have a person of his caliber, his values, his understanding of kitchen table interests, issues for America's working families. He sat at that table when he was a little boy. He knows what it is to lose a, for his father to lose a job. So, and then, you know, we see one thing that I do know maybe better than others because I've seen him with families who have lost a loved one. You know, when we've had these meetings with on gun violence and the rest, and the families come, and the survivors come, and we have them have been had, had, had not now, but we had been having them regularly. 
they would go in a room with him. They would want to be with him because he had lost a child and a wife and now another child. And so they were so simpatico. They, mm -hmm. they trusted that he understood their pain. And then when you lose a child, you have a pre-existing condition. There's just nothing that, that uh, can match that. So I've seen him listen, listen, not tell them, but hear them. And uh, it, it's a beautiful thing to behold. I'm not in the room. I'm in the room before they go in the room because it's just them. Uh, it's just them together. But to see their reaction uh, to being, being with him. So his empathy springs from his experience, his experience as his dad losing his job, his experience of losing a child and the rest. And uh, he's going to be a, a really great president and he's going to be beautifully served by Kamala Harris. And we're so proud of the, of, of, of the team. Apropos to what you just said, it, it was striking to see him on the campaign trail when you were allowed to be on the campaign trail yeah. because after the event, people would line up. He was like a sort of a mobile, like Lourdes unit. He was a mobile counselor. People yeah. who had experienced yeah. pain and loss stood in line to speak with him. And that con that connection between them was really palpable. Do you have any worries about these debates that are upcoming? No. I, well, I, my view, I wouldn't even debate Trump because unless you have a lie detector or a, a truth teller or a, a whatever you call those things. What do they call them? Um, a polygraph? Uh, well, a Pinocchio or something. Oh. To, 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 but I wouldn't even debate him. I wouldn't even give But Joe Biden has said he will, and that's great. I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't debate him because I would be afraid of him. I don't remember when he was stalking Hillary Clinton which, during the debate. Why wouldn't the press have said, go back to your place? Why did they let that happen? I think the press... With all the respect in the world, I think the freedom of the press is the great guardian of our democracy. But I think they've enabled a lot of Trump uh, to happen. But let me just tell you one more thing about Trump. My kids and my grandchildren loved Biden. They <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> but love Biden. They love Biden. They have since they were even younger than they are now. When they were two of them who are now like 12 and 13, but when they were more like five and six, we had a lunch in New York for the DCCC, and he was our guest. And they live in New York, so we brought him to the lunch. And oh, they had the most beautiful conversation once again uh, about pets and this and that. And um, then we went to a candy store, Dylan's, you know, in Manhattan. And they have like gates, things you go through here, you go through there. So they, they, they were, you know, five and six years old, and they're saying, okay, it's no longer open sesame. The magic word is open Biden. <laughs> and everybody in place could hear them. And it was their own invention that he was the magical word. Uh, but his goodness, mm -hmm. his goodness, when people are with him, his goodness just is transmitted. His authenticity, his integrity, his kindness, his respect for people. I just want to finish up by talking about you. I have to confess that the last time we got together was when you were the minority leader, when you were the Democratic leader, and you mm. were under a lot of pressure about whether you would continue right. on. And I asked you about that, and you pretty much handed me my head. I was oh, carrying really? it around. I was carrying <laughs> it around for weeks after that. Now, and it was, well, she's, she's, she's too old. She should hey, quit. She up. should go. But... Uh, <laughs> 
Now everybody's like, well, I can't imagine what it would be like mm -hmm. without her. Is that sort of head spinning to you to go from there to here? Or is it satisfying? Or just how do you process all of that? Well, I always had, my members always gave me confidence. You know, there would be some objectors, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I would not have gone forward just because I felt like it. Uh, my, but I was encouraged by my colleagues uh, to do so. And to do so in a way uh, that would ultimately be unifying. So uh, I never had any question about my confidence in terms of prevailing, A, eh? and winning the election. I mean, look, in 06 and 18, we were left to our own devices. The house, it wasn't presidential, it wasn't anything else. Left to our own devices. We had a plan, we had the resources, we got it done. Your friend, Rahm Emanuel, part yes, of it in 06. Yes, he reminds me all the time. <laughs> And us here. And uh, uh, one of these days we'll have some conversations about that because uh, <laughs> because they we had to make some tough decisions. And I had to make some tough decisions about how we would um, go down that path. But anyway, that's another story. But then in 18, same thing. This is our show. This is our show. We're going to have a simple mess. In, in 6, it was 6 for 06. This is what it is. How come it isn't this? How come it isn't? Because this is what it is. This is the winning message. Same thing, but I said before, for the people, lower health care, bigger paycheck, cleaner government. That's it. It doesn't have this. It doesn't have that because it has this, the winning message. And it took enormous resources to do that. And uh, people believed in me and being able to get that done. While some people, see, I don't believe that Republicans should choose the leaders of our party. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we should choose theirs and they shouldn't choose ours. So I was like, why are you worrying about what Republicans say? Say whatever you want to say, get yourself elected. I'll be able to fend for myself. But don't think it's a good idea for Republicans to take out 137 ads against the leader and think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I, I, I better not vote for her. I knew I would prevail. We mentioned I know, three. I, 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 I want to <laughs> let you go, but three. You 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 mentioned the three hundred bills that are sitting on more, more than three hundred. It now feels as if you may have a Democratic Senate come. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? Come January, Chuck Schumer, Majority Leader of the Senate. Oh my gosh! What are the things that are most important to you that have been bottled up that you think will be passed and signed into law and President Obama has been very outspoken lately, including at John Lewis's funeral about, about the that? filibuster. Oh, my God. About the filibuster. And do you think that um, the filibuster should be done away with? Do you, are you frustrated with the pace of the Senate? Well, you know what? I don't get into their stuff that I... <laughs> I, I, I but they bottle up your stuff. Well, but the fact is, they'll make the Democrats when they win will make their decision about what what it should be, and I respect that. But you asked about what we want. Well, we are already uh, one HR uh, one is that our cleaner government and issues that relate to raising up the grassroots and reducing the role of big dark money in politics and getting rid of voter suppression. Two, build the infrastructure of America in a green way. Uh, then we have the uh, HR3, lower the cost of prescription drugs by enabling the secretary to negotiate. Uh, four is the Voting Rights Act, which is part of one, but it, it has its own path because of constitutional issues. Five, uh, we have um, the um, uh, 
issue that is equality for LGBTQ community. Uh, next, we have issues that relate to our dreamers and, and a comprehensive immigration reform. After that, climate action. Now, eight, gun violence protection by sensible background check in, in, in initiatives. That basically- That's just that for starters, huh? Yeah, but that's like our around it, within our top ten. Uh, those mm -hmm. are issues that we we really do have to address in order to for the children. As I say, you have to throw a punch and take a punch for the children, and for the children, we want to have uh, their health and education, the economic security mm -hmm. of their families, clean, safe place for them to live and work, uh, play, and survive a world of peace in which they can reach their fulfillment, and uh, all of that is uh, dependent upon the election. You have to go. Be, on the way out, say a word about John Lewis. I had the honor to sit down with him uh, with, with your help, and I spent an incredible hour talking about his life. I, I saw your remarks about him both at the Capitol and at the funeral, mm -hmm. and it was clear that this was more than the loss of a colleague yeah. to you. Tell me about your relationship with him. Well, I, I, I was so privileged to serve with him as a colleague. We were together 33 years in the Congress. We were classmates in that early time. and uh, But to be able to call him friend was something of a privilege. But he made us all feel as if we were his friend, as I said at the funeral. Here we are, all of his best friends. Uh, as I said at the this pin that I gave him, 4th of, 4th of July, I went to visit him. I gave him a, a pen like this. And this pin says on it, one country, one destiny. And that's John Lewis, right? One country, one destiny. This also, those words were also embroidered in a Lincoln's coat that he had on that fateful yes. night. Probably a coat he wore every night, but nonetheless. <laughs> and and um, I said that at the funeral, I know, but I just didn't. But one thing I didn't say that I would say here, there was a um, Presbyterian bishop, an African bishop in Africa, and he nailed this to the wall in a hospital there. And I think of this, and John and I talked about this a lot. Uh, we said, um, when one day... I will happily go meet my make, maker, my creator. He will say to me, show me your wounds. And if I say, Lord, I have no wounds, he will say, was nothing worth fighting for? And John Lewis, when he went up there, sent us the double rainbow. You saw that he yes. sent us the double rainbow to say, I'm home. I'm home in heaven. He had yeah. plenty of wounds he to show his creator and, and join Martin, John, and Bobby, Elijah, yeah. his wife, Lillian, so many others. So he's a constant inspiration to all of us, but it's still heartbreaking uh, to think of losing him. Yeah. Speaker, so good to see you. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to these next few months. They're going to be interesting and challenging. and. It could be a really, really energizing uh, beginning of the year. May I just thank you because you bring to the discussion so much experience about policymaking and politics and values, and it really it, it's a joy uh, to be with you thank because you. because I know that um, uh, you really want are see always seeking the truth. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Speaker. 
Thank you. Great to be with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.